0: One of the things I like about living in Colorado Springs, especially during this season, is all the new stores and businesses that keep coming into town. I'm going to keep hearing about new places and someone will recommend something that you've got to try. And and I love that because there's so many really cool places, cool businesses, services that are offered in our community. Uh, Last year, a couple in our church, uh, Barry and Susan Dodson, invited my wife and I to go try Fuzzy's Taco Shop. Have you heard of that place? Now I have to tell you, I was I was a little cautious. Anytime you put fuzzy with meat, it it concerns me. So a, a fuzzy taco shop just says, I don't know that just sounds like ew, kind of a messy, dirty place. And so we decided to check it out anyway. We we drove up there. It's on North Powers and right hand side of the road. We pull in. And we couldn't find a place to park. I mean I mean this place is is so popular that the parking spots were all filled. And so we drove around, drove around, finally found a place, parked says, we got to check this place out. We walk inside. There's nothing spectacular about the layout of it, but you can just tell there's a vibe in the room. There's a a, a chatter going on. There's some noise. People just don't have their nose in their food. They're actually, like, having fun being there. And we look around. They've got TVs on the walls. There's sports games. But nobody's really watching the TVs even. It almost feels like we're all on the winning team. And we're celebrating, so people are eating their food, and it's very affordable, and we decided to, to try some food there and loved it. And in fact, we came back and brought our small group to it, and we said, man, this was like a secret that we never knew about until someone told us. And a lot of places are like that. You ever heard of it's the best-kept known, best kept secret in the city? Businesses don't want to stay secret. They want to be known. And there's no greater advertising than word-of-mouth advertising, You can spend a lot of money on billboards and and TV ads and mailers that go out to people. But by far, the the most impactful form of marketing is word of mouth. It's when one person experiences something that is so satisfying. Might be a business, might be a service, might be a restaurant. It's so satisfying that they can't keep it to themselves. they got to tell someone else. And what's so powerful about that is they're not paid to do that. When a business says, hey, we're the greatest, such and such, you go, yeah, right. You want us to buy your product. That's why you say you're the greatest, and I don't really believe you're the greatest. But when someone says, hey, we tried this new place. It was amazing. You need to try it too. They're staking their reputation on on it. And what they want is for you to experience the satisfaction they experienced. And, you know, when, when God started this whole thing called the church and the gospel and the message going out. He didn't, he didn't resort to billboards. He didn't resort to a marketing campaign that uh, printed materials. He, he didn't have airplanes fly over with banners or, or give you rainbow-colored wigs to wear at sports games. He says, here's, here's the way I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you so satisfied in your relationship with Jesus that you can't keep it to yourself. And it's gonna go out word of mouth. You're gonna be my witnesses into all the world. And I really believe that God is doing something incredible in the world. And he's doing it through people like you and me. And we've been going through this book of Ephesians, learning about this, this message called the gospel and its impact on people in Ephesus. And so if you have a Bible, uh, we're, like I said, we're going to be in chapter 3 today. We're going to read uh, actually kind of a difficult passage this week and again next week that, that you really have to kind of settle into and say, okay, what, what's the value to me? And what I took out of this passage is, is Paul's example to us in his commitment to what God was doing in the world. It, to me, it, it makes me want to join Paul. It makes me want to do what he's doing. Maybe not in the same way, because Paul is different than me, and it's a different time period, but to be engaged in what God's doing in the world. And I want to invite you to do that with me. So Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read the first six verses. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. When we read about Paul, and we look at his story, we can get so caught up into in think, ah, oh, Paul, such an amazing man, so devoted to Christ. God used him in such incredible ways. What we might forget is that God's wanting to use you and me in a similar way. Maybe not as, quite as impactful, maybe not as an apostle and, and as a church plant or missionary, but in our own sphere of influence in a very significant way. See, God is saving the world through people like you and like me, even today. And this wonderful message of Jesus is going out. And what I find in this passage is if we look at Paul's example in his attitude, in his posture, how he approaches things, in his, in his responsibilities, we too can share in the, in the same mission that he's involved in. Now he starts off with this phrase, it's the first verse there, and if you'll you notice in your Bible, there's, there's a hyphen there. It's like Paul starts talking and then says, wait a minute, I have something else I want to share right now. He starts for this reason, you know, as, as you've heard, I've been a prisoner uh, of Jesus Christ and all this. And then he goes into this tangent. It kind of seems like a tangent. Paul does that a lot. You notice in, in the first chapter when we were back there, verses three through 14 is actually one sentence in the Greek. And then there's another long sentence for the rest of the chapter. It's like Paul, once he gets talking, can't shut up. He does it in the second chapter. There's a whole, whole number of verses that in the Greek are one sentence. It's the same here. When he goes into this into this. Kind of parenthetical statement. It's, it actually goes from verse verse two all the way to verse thirteen. It's one sentence. It's like Paul. Paul gets so caught up in something that he's got to got to talk about this right now. And I love that about Paul. It's one of the reasons I I believe the scriptures are authentic. It's because it's not per, it's not perfect. It's not like everything's put in precise order. The personality of the writer comes out. Is it? God says, you know, I want to use Paul and all's. All Paul's idiosyncrasies and his passions and his, and, his, and his way of thinking, I want to use that for my glory. If you've been reading through Luke with us, you notice that Luke is different. Luke's very orderly and proper, and he's, he's documenting this account, this historical account of Jesus. But when you come to Paul's writings, Paul gets like so passionate. He gets like, i got to tell you about this. And then he goes off, 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 and there's a big thought about God, and then he comes back to where he left off. And that's Paul. I love that about Paul. It just tells me God uses people... In their distinct personality. And it's true for you and it's true for me. You have a distinct personality. It's different from somebody else. You may be more passionate than someone else. You may be more objective than someone else. You may be more rational and you like things in order. That's okay. God will use you. It's, it's the Holy Spirit operating through personality. And every personality is God given. Now there's rough edges. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. But God doesn't erase our personality. We still are the people he made us to be. And so Paul says, for this reason, that's where he begins, for this reason, and you just have to pause and say, for what reason? What is he talking about? For what reason? What reason is he in prison? Well, go back to last week. He just finished the thought. And if you remember, the Bible's not broken into chapters. It wasn't written that way. It was one long letter. So Paul's flow of thought just carries over from last week. What did we look at last week? Well, this great truth, that God through Jesus Christ, has broken down the walls that separate us from God and separated us from the Jews or from other believers. He's brought us together as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. He's brought us together as members of his very own family. He's brought us together as stones, as it were, that are being assembled into a temple which is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He, he just got done saying, the people who were far away have been brought near, and now they're, just, they're so included in this thing with the, with the believing Jews that they're inseparable. They're all one. But Paul says, for this reason, I'm in prison. For this great story, I'm suffering. And you, did, you need to know a little bit more about that. And that's why he goes into this parenthetical kind of statement here. He starts off saying that he's the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, when I think of that, I think that in his mind, uh, he's, he's saying, I'm subservient to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I am his slave. Uh, he's adopting the, the mentality or the attitude of a slave. He has given up his rights. He now belongs to this master. He says, I don't belong to Rome. They may think they have control over me, but I've already given up control of my life to someone else. And that is to Jesus Christ. He is my master. Jesus said no man can serve two masters. He only can have one. And Paul says, I've chosen mine, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, he uses that phrase again in chapter 4, verse 1, that he's a prisoner of the Lord. But most of the time in the New Testament, he and other writers will actually use the word doulos, which is a Greek word that, that is often translated servant. But in reality, the better translation is slave, now, the reason it's not translated slave and hasn't been in most Bible translations is this. We have a very negative view of slavery. We think of all the abuses, the checkered past, the, the pain and abuse connected with slavery. But it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. Many times it was as if, like, almost like a hired employee. It was someone who worked for someone else. And, but because of the darkness of that word, the translators have chosen not to translate it literally. So they translate the word servant. And So when you have stories, like when Jesus said uh, a, a man had three servants and gave them different numbers of, of talents, and they went out and used the talents, that word isn't really servant. It's doula, slave. He had slaves. And when, he came, when they came back, he says, well done, good and faithful slave. Think about Paul. To, to identify himself as a prisoner or someone captive who's given up his rights to Jesus Christ, Paul, when, when freedom was something that people valued very highly, when, when being free of everything was like the epitome uh, of, of victory in life, I'm free, I'm totally free, Paul says, not me. I'm enslaved to Jesus Christ. I've given up my rights. It's no longer about me, it's about him. So in Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes his, his attitude this way. I have been crucified with Christ. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not about me anymore, it's about Jesus. It was his chosen attitude. What's interestingly interesting is in the New Testament, that word doulos, which means slave, is, is used 130 times. Most of the time talking about our relationship with the Lord. We are his bondservant, we are a slave. But in the pagan religions of Paul's day, you would never find it describing a relationship with a human being and the pagan god. Because it was so repulsive to them. We came out of slavery into this religion. We're free now. But Paul says it's kind of the opposite for him. I've come out of a different kind of bondage. See, Paul, before he found Christ, was really in bondage to a religious system, legalism, that that confined him. He was trapped. He was trying to do everything he could to, to make God happy, but nothing was making God happy. Nothing quite measured up. There was always this anger within him, this aggression within him. He was out there persecuting Christians, thinking he was doing God a favor. And he was bent on this, on, on this kind of lifestyle, this legalistic approach to life that was hindering him. That was his prison. But through Christ, he was made free. And in his freedom, he says, Now I choose to surrender my life to Jesus Christ, I will be his slave. Now, you might think that Paul would look at his life and go, you know, I'm in this Roman prison, and it sucks. I mean, God called me to be this missionary, to go out there in the world and win people to Christ, and here I am in prison. How am I going to fulfill God's will? God, what are you doing? I mean, it could, it could easily become something Paul gets bitter over, complains constantly about, It could be something where Paul feels like, God, you must not be sovereign. You must not be powerful because I'm in a place where obviously I cannot carry out your will. But that's not how Paul looked at it. In fact, you would not even know Paul was in prison had he not said so. The tone of the letter, and this is true of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, all written from prison. You wouldn't know he was in prison if he had not said so because his attitude is so positive. Many of us have a prison of our own life. We've got... Things that have happened to us in the past, wounds. And we play the, the victim card. We we've identified ourselves as that's who I am because of what happened to me in the past. And that's all I'll ever be. And so that's kind of my prison. I can never escape it. Some of us have a prison of addictive behavior, of habits, of tendencies in our life, patterns of behavior that we fall back into. We may rise up at times and have victory over it, but then we fall back into it, and it's like we get sucked back into this prison. We can't get out of it. We can't break free from it. Some of us have this prison of shame and guilt and doubt, hopelessness. And we feel like there's there's like bars around it. I can't ever get away from this. And so we become resentful. We become despondent. And we look to God and say, God, where are you in the midst of all this? But that's not what Paul did. Paul looked at his situation. Just he knew, God, you're sovereign. God, you're still in control. See, Paul had been in prison before. Remember the Philippian prison he was in. Paul, Paul will be in prison again later. But during this day, we'll find out. Paul's actually in about his third or fourth year of being in prison. I mean, that's a long time. That's a big chunk of your life. He's in prison day after day after day. It would seem like, God, I'm on hold. I can't do ministry. But that's not Paul's attitude. Paul actually continued to do ministry, maybe a little different way. For example, the prison did not stop Paul from praying. Didn't stop him from praying. If you read through his letters to the churches, it sounds like Paul's praying all the time. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I keep asking God or I keep thanking God. It seems like Paul is so devoted to prayer. Well, he's got a lot of time to pray while he's in prison. Sometimes, God brings you to a place in life where you slow down. Maybe you've had surgery. You're in the hospital. Maybe you're unemployed. Maybe you're deployed. Maybe you're going through a phase of life where you go, God, I'm, I'm idling now. I'm just kind of waiting. I'm just waiting to get that job, waiting to get to school, waiting for the move. And God says, why are you waiting? You can pray right now. And we underestimate the power of prayer in accomplishing God's purposes. Maybe God's given us space so our ministry right now could be a ministry of prayer. It didn't stop him from witnessing. The prison did not stop him from talking to other people about Christ. When you read the book of Philippians, Paul, Paul says something pretty amazing. It's not in your notes there, but Philippians chapter um, two verses 12 and, excuse me, 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, Paul's saying that everybody around me knows. And by the way, these were elite soldiers, hundreds of them, the whole guard. He says, they all know why I'm here. They all know that I'm here because of Christ. How did that happen? Well, in the Roman prisons, quite often, you were actually chained to a guard, And you may feel like, man, I'm confined. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I'm stuck here next to this guy. Here's how Paul looked at it. I have a captive audience all day to talk to him about Jesus. And that guy, when he gets an earful, says, I'm done. New guy comes. Paul says, new material now. Do you know my story? Do you know how? You know what Jesus did for me? He keeps sharing it. And it becomes known throughout the whole guard that Paul is in prison because of Jesus. Sometimes when we feel like, God, I'm stuck in this place, God says, I put you in this place because you're going to reach people that could never be reached elsewhere. El- elsewhere. You are there to speak to people. Maybe you're in a school. You had to go back to school, back at college. God, I don't know why I have to go back to school to learn some things for my job. And God says, you're in a new place now. All kinds of people around you that don't know me. You're, you're in a job that's not your ideal job. It's kind of like a stepping stone job. And you go, when I get to the real job, then I can really serve the Lord. And God says, right now, serve me right where you are. You got people in your job that I'm, I, I need you to be my witness there. You're living in an apartment because you want to buy a house, but you're not ready to yet. And you go, man, when I get a house, we're going to have people over the house. We're going to, we're going to talk to Jesus about Jesus to them. And he says, don't wait till then. Do it right now. You, you're in an apartment complex with all kinds of people that need to know me. See, where has God placed you right now? It may not be a hindrance to ministry. It may be a platform for ministry. And and Paul couldn't be stopped from encouraging others. You know, one of the greatest things Paul did in prison was write some letters to churches that ended up being included in your Bible. Otherwise, he probably would have been too busy to do that. He had time. He'd send those letters out with his, his disciples, you know, guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus, and, and Epaphras, and Tychicus, and all these guys. They would go out to churches and deliver things, and then come back. And so Paul kept encouraging these churches. Just because you're in a place that you don't feel like is your best platform doesn't mean you can't keep encouraging people in their relationship with the Lord. That's what Paul did. Paul knew that, that Jesus was still his master. He was still sovereign. He was working out his will in this place. Now, there's a real interesting law in the Old Testament about slaves. See, there were some Jews, some Hebrews, that were actually slaves of Hebrews, in a sense, employees. And they were treated well. But on the seventh year, they were commanded, by the, the owners were commanded to release them. And so I want to read to you a passage from the law from Exodus chapter 21. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. He doesn't have to pay for it. You just release him, he goes. He's a free agent. Go. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God. And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. In other words, the slave who's fulfilled his duties, six years, seventh year, year of freedom, owner says, You know what? It's been, it's been a pleasure working with you. God says it's time for you to go free. If this slave says, You know what, I love it here. I love, I love serving you. I, I want to stay. Can I stay? The owner would say, If you stay, you stay for life. And if he says, Yeah, that's what I want to do. They would then go through this ritual. They'd go over to the door and they would take an awl, steel tipped awl. And why are you cringing? You got your ears pierced. <laughs> take that awl, take, put it against the earlobe, and pound it a hole right through that ear to mark him. I probably put something in there so it wouldn't close and say, Okay, you belong to me now forever. And I'm, I was just picturing that. This is, not, this is not demanded. This is not forced upon him. This is a willful decision where the slave says, I, I want it. Do that to me. Mark me. I'm yours forever. And how there was probably tears and embracing going on after that ritual. Made me think, why, why in the world did God say, go to the door to do that? Why, why didn't you just like, put your head on a table and we'll punch a hole there? I can understand the earlobe. It's kind of fatty skin there, but why the door? Why would you do this at the door? And I got to thinking, you know what doors symbolize? It's, it's a, the door is a place where you come and go. And it's almost as if he said, one last chance. You want to go, go. If not, right here, right here. I'll pierce your ear and you'll belong to me forever. I wondered if six years after your baptism we said, you know what? Jesus releases you. You no longer belong to him. And if we had a ritual saying, okay, but we're going to bring out this steel awl, not going to baptize you a second time, but this time, this is for life. This is the piercing ceremony. How many of us would line up for that? Say, I'm, I'm his. I want to be his forever. Gives a whole new meaning to all for Jesus, doesn't it? <laughs> all right? <sighs> Who's calling the shots in your life? Paul knew it was Jesus. And I hope for you, it's Jesus. Let him be Lord, be a slave to him. Secondly, assume the posture of a servant. Assume the posture of a servant. We are put on this earth to be a blessing to others. We're here to serve others. Remember the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We're here to serve others. We're here to love others. But you know, it's so easy to be prejudiced. It's so easy to look down on different races, uh, another gender, other ages, different economic classes. I mean, it's so easy to do that. I'm amazed at how deep this hatred was for Jews toward the Gentiles. I mean, even as we're looking, some of you are joining me in this reading of the Gospel of of Luke. And if you read a passage this week, Jesus goes into into the synagogue. The the first thing he does after he's baptized, reads a scripture from Isaiah where it says, the year of the Lord has come, the year of God's favor, time to proclaim um, freedom, uh, for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind. And after he got done reading, the people said, they marveled at his gracious words. It's like they said, oh, that was good, good sermon, Jesus. And Jesus said, it's, it's been fulfilled right in, your, right in your hearing today, meaning it's me, I'm the one who's going to do that. And because Jesus knew they quite, weren't quite understanding what it meant, that this is the year of the Lord's favor. God's doing a great thing, and you guys aren't aware of what he's doing. Let me tell you a couple Old Testament stories. And he told two stories of how the the Israelite people did not have faith, and God had to go outside them to find faith in a Gentile. One was a widow, one was a Syrian commander. And it says, God chose people outside the Jewish race to find people of faith. And it says that when they heard that, they became so infuriated that they wanted to take Jesus to the edge of a cliff and push him off. When I read that, I was just amazed. They just got done saying, nice sermon, Nice sermon, Jesus. And now we want to kill you. What made them so mad? It's this idea that God loves those other people that we hate. And so we come into the the book of Acts. We see the same thing. Paul is called. We don't have time to read Acts 26, but he's called to go to the Gentiles, to open their eyes, to, to, to get out of the darkness, and to be free from the power of Satan. And so Paul's planting all these churches in, uh, in the Gentile regions, he comes back to Jerusalem with an offering that the churches have collected to help the Jerusalem church, which is composed of Jewish believers, during a time of famine. So he goes to deliver this gift, and he tells that God's doing some great things among the Gentiles, and people go, amen, love it, that's awesome. But then they say, Paul, just be real careful, be on your best behavior, because there's a lot of Jews here that just, they look a little differently at you. So be careful how you act. So when Paul goes out in the public, some of the Jewish people say, there's that guy who tells people to disregard the law of Moses. There's that guy who's bringing Gentiles into the temple and desecrating it. And it says that they began to drag Paul off as if they're now going to beat him up. And so Roman authorities come, and you can read about it in Acts 22. The Roman authorities come, and they pull him away. And they're going to actually save him from getting beat up. And then Paul says, hey, wait a minute, I want to talk to these people. So Paul gets up and says, and in, in Hebrew, he's trying to identify with them, he begins to tell them his testimony of how he came to know Jesus, how he was a persecutor of believers, how God did an incredible thing in his life. And then he gets to the place where he says that God had called him to go take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now listen to this, Acts 22, 22 Up to this word, what word? Gentiles. Up to this word, they, meaning the Jewish crowd, listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Paul's telling this great thing. God loves these Gentiles. He loves them. He really does. And they say, No, he doesn't. Kill that man. I mean, can you, can you just see how much this hatred is? So Paul's telling the, the Ephesians, You've come a long way. God's done an incredible thing for you. I have given my life to this message so you could benefit from it. And I don't know if you folks today understand this, but we are part of those Gentiles that were excluded and now have been included. Paul calls it this mystery that's now made known. Mystery meaning it's not, a, it's not mysterious, meaning it's weird, strange, occultic. It mean, a mystery in the Bible is a truth that is known in part and now is known fully because God has made it known. It's something that people understood like in seed form, but now God through his revelation has made it fully known. Now here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this idea that God's including outsiders in his family to be one with his believing Jews, he said that's been God's plan from the beginning. See, he goes back to to the... covenant God made with Abraham. You can read about it in Galatians, but he quotes us when he writes this letter to the Galatians. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in in you shall all the nations be blessed. He says that's the gospel. Way back when Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God said, "I I have a vision for the whole world to come into a relationship with me. And over and over again, we see through the Old Testament, God says, you will be a light to the nations. He says, my salvation will be known among all the nations. I mean, a lot of scriptures, we don't have time to look them all up, but he's, he's telling them. When we come to the gospel of Luke, Luke is a Gentile. He's writing his, his gospel. And if you haven't caught it already, Luke, Luke accentuates the fact that God loves the Gentiles. And so when the, when the story of the birth of Christ comes, he makes sure it's very clear. When the angel spoke, he recorded these words. And this will be good news of great joy for all the people. When Simeon in the temple took the little baby Jesus in his arms, he says, this is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So it's always been God's plan to include the Gentiles in his family, in his kingdom, in his church. Some people think that it was an afterthought of God. It was a parenthesis in God's plan. It was God's plan from the beginning. It was always God's plan. It always will be God's plan. And Paul says, I'm a servant of that message. And because of that message, I'm suffering in prison. But you benefit from it. See, I love Paul's attitude. Of, I'm, just gonna, I'm here to serve other people. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I, that I might win more of them. Sometimes we think that in order to win people to Christ, I've got to be bombastic and loud and forceful. I think the greatest thing you can do is just adopt the attitude of a servant and love people and serve them, and the door will open for you to represent Christ to them. One other thing Paul says is that he accepts the responsibility of a steward, of a steward. He says that he has become a steward of this mystery and a steward of the, of the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. A steward is someone who takes someone else's possessions and manages them for them. I worked for a lady one summer. She was a widow. Her husband had passed away, and they had a a big estate in the outskirts of Cincinnati. So she showed me the garage that has the riding lawnmower, all his tools, and said, basically, you have access to all this stuff to use to take care of my land. And so she was entrusting her stuff with me. Well, God has entrusted tools and resources to you and me. Things like our time, the hours in the day, the time that we have, the, the, um, the talents that we have. The skills and abilities, the treasures that we have, the the possessions, the money that we have. God has entrusted that to us. Our testimony, our story. Just like Paul shared his story, you have a story, a beautiful story that God wants you to share. All these God has given us so that we could steward them for Him. I want I want to ask you, what has God given to you to steward for His glory? You don't have to be like the Apostle Paul. You don't have to be the same as Him. We won't be apostles and, and church planters and missionaries, most likely. But God is using people like you and like me to communicate to the world this wonderful message. See, the secret's not secret anymore. It's not a mystery. The word, the word needs to go out. And here's how the word goes out. It's when a man or a woman, whether, whether it's a child or an, or an adult or a senior adult, comes into a relationship with Jesus and finds it so satisfying that you, you just can't keep it to yourself. And so the word goes out through us. The word overflows. Now I want you to think of the people around you that don't know Jesus? That has God placed you in a position and given you his resources so that you might lead someone else to Jesus? Is there someone you should be praying for today to know Jesus? So here's the beautiful thing about this story. First of all, we're included in it. We're part of the Gentiles that get wrapped up in the story. It's for us. It was not just for us. There's a world out there. Every day you come across men and women There's not a single one that you see, no matter how vile they are, that Jesus has not loved and died for.